you're tuned in to the Neo Academy podcast. My name's Mark, and welcome to another episode of Neo Chats, deep dive conversations into the culture of education. Okay, so welcome, Catherine, to an, to an episode of Neo Chats, and thanks for making the time to be with us. And if you would just take a minute to, well, just to let the network know um, what you do. Okay, brilliant. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm an education writer and strat strategist, which is, oh, what is that? Uh, well, basically, I've worked in um, developing um, online solutions for schools, really, for the last 20 years or so. So I've done a lot of programs with many people across, you know, from BBC to Google to others. Um, but there was always um, uh, the point for me was always to sort of stretch things to create things that are more uh, relevant and real life for children. So that's that's where my experience is. And out of that, I've also um, developed a, a writing practice and creating resources for schools, but always with that same sort of view that make it very child centric. So that's um, that's kind of where where I'm coming from. And uh, for the last four years, I was uh, chief educator an interesting title at uh, Little Inventors and um, what I did there was really sort of create the challenges and the direction that we were taking in terms of uh, how to engage schools and that was at uh, primary, elementary and secondary level as well and interestingly it was a global project as well so I wasn't working just in the UK, I was working a lot in Canada and in China and the UAE uh, so it was a really interesting project to look at how you could uh, create something that could work for so many people across so many different parables. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot to dig into there. And <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to start right at the kind of the foundation of it, because what you're talking about is something external, you know, you're bringing something into schools and helping them engage. And you're mentioning um, child centric as something mm -hmm. that I guess that you're, you're, you're supporting. So what is it about schools that why isn't that already inside? Why is it that that you are your 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 role is necessary? You know to come in externally and and promote this. Well, there's a bit of a slight irony, I suppose, is that uh, a lot of education is done from the top down. So it's like we're we're doing things for teachers. How about we did things for the people who actually need to learn for the kids? Because we tend to sort of make a lot of assumptions about children that they are like vessels to be filled, and that we need to tell them what they need to know. However, you know, children are naturally, you know, there's a brilliant quote by um, Derry Hannum, who knows a thing or two about education. He was an Ofsted inspector and he's uh, part of a movement towards democratic education. And he said this lovely thing, which is um, children, it's almost impossible to stop children and young people from learning. Somehow schools almost manage it. <laughs> and, um, and one of the issues is that children are basically not given any agency or freedom within their own education. We, we are not trying to create things that they can relate to. They are taught this is the set of outcomes you've got to do and you've got this is the right answer. This is how, if you don't do that, you fail. And it's, it's a bit of a systematic way that sadly that uh, puts them in a situation where they sort of shut off. The, the, the education system doesn't feel like it's relating to them, which is why we need to bring back the sort of child-centeredness to it. We need to look at what is it that children care about? How do we inspire them into learning? Because that, that joy of learning is there. It just needs to be ignited. Yeah, 
absolutely and you know i'm definitely not going to hide my complete agreement with that <laughs> i probably wouldn't do a good job of hiding it anyway but um i should i should say that i have nothing but immense respect and admiration for teachers and for schools i think the job they're doing is extraordinary and and what they have to do is is insane in a way you know the amount of work that they've got to do is insane and the, the problem is that a lot of their job has become an admin job it's going to be a box ticking exercise and it's not the sort of you know most people that go into teaching will go there as wanting to facilitate learning that's what they will sort of the, the dream when you're coming into teaching is that however the reality of it is going to be very different and the number of teachers that i speak to who apologize to the children and to the parents to say i know this is really boring but we've got to go through it so you know it's a very uh, it's there we, we know that it's the this issue is there it's documented immensely there's a lot of research about it we know we need to transform education we need to move from the victorian model into the 21st century we we know that um so this amazing fact as well so the the institute of the future uh, established that 85 percent of jobs that will exist in 2030 haven't been invented yet and yet we're not transforming our education Yet we are still teaching children as if they're going to go into like careers that they're going to follow through their entire lives. We don't know what these careers are. How can we direct them in there? And why are we not trying to actually equip them with the skills before sort of looking at subjects? Start with the skills, show them what are the things that will be useful for them. So creative thinking, problem solving, all of these things, critical thinking, lateral thinking. These are things that they'll be able to use in everything that they do. And those are the qualities that employers look for as well. So why are we not nurturing that foremost and using all the brilliant stuff, which is maths and science, as inspiration tools? That, I think, is something that would really change uh, education for everyone and make children much more interested as well. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's, it's almost like um, if you're focusing on the content, it's almost like um, we are, as adults, projecting onto the, the, the children through this kind of i i know what you need to know which is a little bit misguided to say the least mm -hmm. um, is based on our current understanding of the world and our, our own experiences and, and is definitely not fit for you know the, the instability of the future and that's for sure so focusing on skills is clearly the way but i mean it seems like um by making education this sort of box ticking exercise it it almost benefits nobody and i i I remember having said exactly what you said there, apologizing for having to do something. And I've, I've uttered those words myself as a teacher. I've said, look, I don't enjoy this any more than you do. We've got to do it. I'm going to try and make it as fun as I can to get, and we'll get through it together. And it's almost the sense of surviving the experience together. Exactly. So teachers don't want to be there. They've got initiative fatigue, you know, with all the things thrown at them. And it, it only seems to benefit the people who have to hold up the Excel in the meeting and say, look at all these things that we've achieved for Aren't we doing well? Yes. Yeah. But nobody's... But it's short-sighted because it's it's numbers on the page as opposed to actually preparing young people for the future. Well, that... in terms of that, for the young people in the future, you've mentioned a, a ton of stuff that you've done. And I wonder, out of all of these things, um, what would you say has made the program or the approach that you, you think has made the most impact? You, you've looked at it and thought, wow, this is transformational. And, and why was that so? Um, it's very simple. And it's um, actually giving children time, mm -hmm. giving them freedom and giving them the chance to actually uh, 
just giving them a voice, the opportunity to actually say what they think without telling them all the time, leading them through everything. So I've got another example um, that I use a lot because it was so striking to me. I went to do a workshop in a school, in a primary school with year fours. And it was about getting them to sort of come up with invention ideas. And before the class, the teacher said to me, uh, it'd be really interesting to see what they come up with because the only way to describe these children is they're quite low on imagination. Now, what I need to also say is that, again, I thought this was a really good teacher because in the classroom, he knew all the kids. He knew how to talk to them. He was sort of taking them from one place to the other. He was engaging them. He was really there. He was really present. And there was a real connection with his class. And but when we did the when we did the workshop, I basically said, you can do whatever you want. No limit. Have fun. If you have any questions, I, I'll be there and I can help you. If you have any ideas that you're not sure about, do it. If it's silly, doesn't matter. Freedom. And after 45 minutes, the teacher came to me and said, I have never seen them so engaged and I'm amazed by the ideas that they came up with. And, um, and the only thing that this teacher was doing wrong is that every minute of every moment the classroom was occupied by something. There was not a moment to breathe. There was not a moment to just actually let them think. So what are we doing if we're not giving children an opportunity to think? Only in sort of like very sort of precise, please make sure that you include your fronted adverbials, the famous fronted <laughs> adverbials, in this sort of paragraph. Can you make sure you do this? Can you make sure you do that? All of these things are constraints. Free them from constraints and actually let them show you the way through their own learning. Yeah, it's such a beautiful idea. And it's... Um... It's exactly what you said at the beginning, you talked about top down. So the top down approach is to try to fill every moment and, and we will tell you what you need to learn. Here's the outcomes and we will scaffold it all around you. And scaffolding is a word that I think works both ways. You know, it can work. At, you can talk about it as support, which I think is fine. If you can think about, OK, they, they might go this way, they might go that way. And if they do, we can think about this and that as. But again, making sure that they are directing the activities. Mm -hmm. but we too often talk about scaffolding as this, as you said, it's more as barriers, you know, it's um, a structure that inhibits that creative yeah. freedom, um, which is an intoxicating idea. But do you think that teachers, um, is it, do you think teachers have the natural inclination to sort of want to let go? Um, I think it's probably an impossible question to answer because everyone would be different. Uh, I think at the moment they are not given the means to let go. And I think also the other thing to say is that, again, to balance things out, is that it's freedom within a structure because you do need that. You know, children need boundaries to sort of get to the best place. But it's this is where I keep on talking about facilitating knowledge as opposed to teaching from the top down. It's like, how do you sort of bring them on a journey? You interest them, you sort of give them a little bit of this and then you let them sort of run with it and you go, OK, well, that was interesting. How about this? And it seems like an impossible thing to do in, a, in the framework of having 30 kids in the classroom. However, you know, you can lead a group and you can actually give them a voice as well and just learn from it. And you can basically use that to riff off it, I think, is one of you, you know. But that, that stuff takes a, a level of freedom that not only the children need, the teachers need to. They need to have permission to bring that level of freedom in the classroom. And that's something that, because of the current circumstances with the government sort of pressure and all everything that's happening, it feels like there's no room for that. So the, the first thing that goes when you have, I've got the example of my son yesterday, who is nine, 
um, they're doing a brilliant project over the next term. They're doing a Disney production of The Lion King as a class. And it's brilliant. So they all get involved. They sort of get the costumes. They sort of learn their lives, sort of work together. It's a brilliant thing to have something to look forward to, especially this year, something that brings a community of children together after being away for so long. That's a fantastic thing. And yesterday he came back and said, oh, we didn't do Disney yesterday because uh, we had to catch up on maths. So <laughs> what's the first thing? What's the first thing that goes? It's these activities which are absolutely core right now. Children are at this stage when they're coming back to school after a year of being away. Teachers have been traumatized as well by what they've had to go to be put through, having to teach online, offline and everything. And what we need right now is for them to have these opportunities to sort of nurture their love of being there and being together. So the idea of these, these challenges or these uh, projects I think is incredible, incredibly powerful right now, yet they are still sort of seen as optional. Yeah, it's almost like they're they're frivolous. If they're the first thing that gets cut, then it just it makes it very clear where the priorities lie, you know? Exactly. And I don't think that's the I think talking to a lot of teachers, that's not how they will feel. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, how do you balance out the priorities that you're being hammered with? So it's yeah. a very, it's, it's a rock and a hard place, basically, because there's what you would like to do and there's a reality of what you are being asked and demanded to, to do. Do you think there's a, a halfway house? I mean, a, you know, I'm, and I'm certainly not advocating that as, um, as an ideal because, you know, personally, I would like to see a complete transformation, an overhaul of the system. What you're talking about, about you know, uh, you've mentioned a couple of times, freedom and agency being the underpinning core concepts of, of our approach. However, being a realist and understanding that change takes time, people take time to change their minds. Um, is there a is there a kind of halfway house where you think that teachers within the current confines might be able to develop approaches that give learners more agency to direct their own course of learning? Um, it's something that I believe in 100%. And that's where actually I want to position my work because uh, it's all well and good. Yes, the system needs to change. We know that it's not going to happen like this, certainly not at the moment. And so we need to find ways of integrating that in, in teachers and, and schools lives. And um, I think that's something that I was successful in achieving when I was working at Little Inventors, because what we did is creating these resources that were curriculum linked. And it could be, I mean, because if you think about invention in that particular case, um, there's a very simple way to say, well, that fits very well with literacy because it's about developing sort of thinking skills and it's about developing critical thinking and non-fiction aspects. And so you have to do a little bit of that aspect and then you can tie it in with science as well because you're thinking about, you might have a theme which might be energy or it might be something else. So there are ways of bringing in the curriculum aspect in this and rather than the resources that I propose to schools, they are not going to be about telling teachers how to teach the curriculum. What I want to do is give them a layer to enrich it, to stretch it and to give the inspiration that is possibly missing from regular materials. So how do we sort of create these little sparks of excitement? Um, and I think that's why I like, I like to do a lot of um, offer schools challenges that they can take up because there's something quite exciting about doing a competition, knowing that you can get some recognition, knowing that the school might get something out of it. And by the same time, you are still ticking some of the boxes that you need from your curriculum. So it doesn't feel like wasted time. There's nothing worse than giving them something extra to do. 
we need to give something for teachers that is useful, that supports their, their teaching, um, but maybe gives them that little bit of space to, to do things differently. It's very difficult, isn't it? I mean, it's very difficult to come into uh, a school where teachers, I mean, I mentioned initiative fatigue earlier. I think it's a very real thing. Yes. And, I, you know, I mean, every time the political wind shifts and, oh, we're now we're doing this and now we're doing this and now this is the priority and that's the priority. And and te poor, poor teachers, it just gets fed down all the time. This is the latest thing. But, you know, there is something to be said for, look, this is a way to achieve what you have to achieve, but in a way that's going to actually give you energy. You know, we, yes. we've seen that when something like the little inventors or something, you know, project based learning or somewhere where the learners are have the space to develop freedom of creativity and, and apply themselves in that way when they leave there's something different you know when mm. the energy at the end um i've experienced as a teacher where there are sessions where you come out feeling drained yeah and sessions where you can go in feeling drained and come out with twice the energy had at this at the beginning Absolutely. And I think we need to take note on what is it that's happening in there. And usually it's the kind of session that you're advocating, the kind of approach. Yes. You know, and it's, uh, I mean, we know like one other thing that we often talked about when I worked with people like, um, so I worked with like, the, I created a, a financial program called Money Sense for Schools. So I was sort of working on that for, for years. With the Bank of England, uh, no? Is that right? It was um, NatWest RBS. NatWest, uh, yeah. yeah. So um, I worked in an agency that did that worked with companies to create educational programs within their corporate social responsibility. So financial literacy is maybe not, the, you know, I was certainly the queen of it at, for, for one point, and I'm quite happy to sort of do something else now. Yeah. But you know, it was also about real life skills and understanding that. And um, um, where was I going with that? <laughs> um, oh, gosh, I've completely the energy, the, the, the way they get involved. Um, well, it was interesting to look at how you could bring those skills to life, uh, you know, by sort of bringing it down and just not necessarily forcing um, the learning in there, but um, also the value of it in terms of for, for the company to sort of bring that in, sort of like to show like the real life coming in the classroom. So they had a lot of volunteers going into um, all around the UK to sort of deliver things for people that worked in finance going into schools to see the children. and. Mm -hmm what the response always was from um, the teachers and the, the children is that it was even for financial literacy, it was like gold dust to them because it was someone external coming in, telling them something that was real. Yeah. So how do we bring the gold dust in the classroom? Or how do we, I mean, you say gold dust because it's rare. And how do, how do we make sure that it becomes yes. a standard property? Exactly. You know? Because I find parents, if you, if you talk to parents and you say, hey, we want to get more real life skills in the classroom, you'll find very little resistance because most parents know that all the stuff I really needed to know, which was how to be mindful, how to regulate my emotions, how to manage my, my finances at home, how to, what a million things that are yeah. just not, not focused no, exactly. on. So parents will be on board, I think. Yeah. This kind of stuff. And of course we have to be mindful that I'm, I'm balancing a lot of the statements because they seem very sweeping and very general and all this stuff, but so we also know that the learning that happens at school is only part of a child's education. It's, you know, I, can't, I think it's about 25% of a child's education is what happens at school. Everything else is very dependent on what's happening at home. So, you know, it's not like to say that parents have no role in doing any of that. But there's just, 
I think there's, there's definitely a way to provide tools and resources for teachers. That's why, I'm, for me, content is everything. Yeah. Excellent content is absolutely everything. And I've got a certain amount of gripes about some of the, the stuff that I've seen during lockdown, where there were some programs that were pushed, which were for teachers by teachers. And it was like the Victorian classroom delivered through a screen, which is basically the worst of both worlds. You know, just yeah. having a talking head that's telling you, oh, isn't it great? We're going to do grammar today. And and you just have to sit for 25 minutes and just go through a presentation. This is not teaching. This is not learning. This is just an exercise in slight torture, frankly. Yeah. So some children will be able to do it, but um, but none of them will thrive. And I think that's the thing is that the ones that are struggling will struggle. The one who are above the level will just be bored to tears. And the ones who are just getting by will get by. No one's reaching their potential through that. How is that a good outcome? Well, the, the worst possible thing about all of that, the great tragedy is the self concepts that, that young children form about themselves, you know, because of those experiences. Mm-hmm. That's the great tragedy, isn't it? I mean, somebody who's not thriving in that environment and blames themselves and makes judgment about themselves compared to others. That's just so uh, it, it is heartbreaking and incredibly common because all children start creating their own stories from the age of three. So from the age of three, you start getting your sort of sense of this is who I am. This is what I do. <laughs> the younger they are, the more they will feel like I'm bad or I'm stupid. That's something you hear so much of. Oh, I'm, I'm just not, you know, I'm not one of the clever ones. This just that's just not true. You know, that's just not the case. It's just they're not getting the right sort of stimulation. And what's interesting is that it's not like I don't think that I don't believe that school has to be exciting all the time. But actually bringing a little bit of excitement, this idea of like, um, I've just read an article recently about, you know, things that teachers could do right now to make school to make children enjoy school again, when we're coming back into from from the from the pandemic. And my points were really all about, you know, maybe one hour a week, do like a forum, an hour a week is not going to damage your curriculum teaching. But for one hour, give the children a chance to talk and talk about the things that they love. Let them talk about Roblox, let them talk about, you know, uh, Among Us, let them talk about pets, whatever it is, but listen to them. Give them a voice in your classroom, because they will feel like you care for them. And they will have like a, a reason to be there as well. Like we all want to get the validation. We all want to feel valued. Why are we not sort of bring that in and doing it through assemblies when you sort of get to stand up because you did, you know, your, your citizenship award was brilliant this week. It's lovely, but it's still a very formal way that is not coming from the children. Yeah. So. And a formal way in which certain types of learners or certain, you know, certain children will thrive and others will, will not. Will shrivel. Yeah. Yeah. A kind of motif that runs through what you're talking about is is often about um, listening to children, giving them the space, giving them the sense of agency. And something I want to ask you about was, it's almost the the the, the belief that um, of what children are capable of, mm-hmm. you know. And you mentioned about you know letting them be silly when you when you had that that session and you said, look, be silly. There's nothing, you know, just just do it. As adults, when when I've when I've facilitated sessions on design thinking, for example, the amount of coaxing and, you know, to, to get adults to be silly 
it, it, you know, it, it's unbelievable. And and to find, you know, and of course that is where the creativity starts to happen in design thinking. If you talk about, you know, what, what, what Seth Godin calls the dip. And then after that, after all the obvious things come out and all the deeply ingrained patterns have run their course, and then you're left in that kind of nether region and then it starts to spark. Exactly. And it's strange so that we've got to really go through these very, um, you know, um, well scaffolded processes to tap into something that, sh that is our birthright. So and, what's happening there? <laughs> but it's the, um, you know, it's, it's back to that point about, um, so you know, the United Nations have that um, play is a, is a right, is a human right for children. Mm -hmm. You know, that we know that children will not develop well without play. But there's something very strange that happens because it seems to be only applied to the early years. So by the time that children are seven, their playgrounds get less playgroundy. Actually, by the time they're in secondary school, the playgrounds have nothing to play with anyway. And the notion of play becomes like um, almost a sin. It's like the idea of playing is, is absolutely preposterous. However, the way we work best as human beings is when we allow ourselves the chance to play. If you think about uh, the, the most interesting stuff that happens in terms of invention, creativity, science, it's people playing with ideas, you know, like the part of work should be about playing because this is the bit that you're going to allow your mind to just move forward. And why are we stopping play at a young age? Why are we not encouraging a playful approach to sort of bring that the joy in learning and also the appetite to learn? That's the thing that I find completely, well, it's, it's antithesis to learning. Learning and play is the same thing. You learn through play. You explore your world, you do to challenge yourself. This is just the most natural way of engaging with the world around you. And it's safe. What, why is that? I mean, do you think it's, you mentioned earlier the Victorian model. Do you think it's this, possibly this sort of hangover from the Industrial Revolution model of education where we are educating children to get ready to be productive members of society i.e contribute to the economy mm -hmm. and therefore we you know we need them to be serious as quickly as possible and ready for the adult world do you think it's a hangover from that or am i missing oh something no absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and it's quite i think it's something that both ken robinson and sugata mitra are very vocal about you know i know i'm throwing out all these names but it's because it's something that is just so um, it's so well recognized within the education industry that, you know, the role of play in learning is there. We're just not using it. And that the way we're doing things in an antiquated model, we, we know that this is like an established thing, but we don't know how to change it. And I think the, yes, I have this idea of, you know, let's, let's go finish model full of, you know, the, the whole way towards the Scandinavian countries. They've managed to do it, but they've been working on it since 76, yeah. you know. Yeah. So uh, it's going to take time. And I think we need to take sort of steps to sort of show the value of these approaches into the current model, because that's how we're going to be able to do it. That to me is the key to do it. And in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the value of children's ideas, that's something that uh, I had an amazing experience doing when I was doing Little Inventors, because uh, in the four years I was there, I think we produced about 350 inventions. So basically getting children to come up with an idea, partnering them with a, a maker, like a professional artist and bringing their ideas to life not dragon's den but really all about celebrating their imagination mm -hmm. and every single time when we spoke to the children about their ideas there was always something behind it that was incredibly thoughtful or a reason or something so um there was a little girl um who was eight called emily and she came up with the silent ear covers 
and it was like a pair of ears that you could just plug in and it just looked like ears and the point for Emily was that um, she's got she's autistic and she's got sensory overload and so she can't really stand too much noise but she doesn't want to have to wear headphones because then she stands out and that's also a no-no for her so she wanted something that would make her sort of safe but also not necessarily come through so we created this object and she was able to use them and we had an amazing message from her parents after a few months who said um before she got involved in this she did okay she was just like one of the middle children you know she sort of like she neither particularly great neither particularly bad she was very quiet but since she's had this opportunity and to get her ideas um, seen and done she's become a little chatterbox and she's coming up with things and she's sort of like she's much more sort of positive in the classroom and she's 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 here and um to be able to do something like that you know this this didn't take like a year of learning this took like one initiative that was you know a few hours and that that was a, a seed for her of sort of self-awareness and self-confidence that she can take in everything else she does so that to me is what we should try to do is how do we bring these sort of nuggets of inspiration to children to sort of get them on their way yeah so so this this comes back to what you're talking about is how you've positioned the work that you do is it, it's almost like okay I'm, I'm not advocating for things to always be this way but I mean, there, there's an awareness, of course, of if it takes, if it's going to take a while to change. And I, and I totally, I like the, the way you're framing it about the move towards, you know, we can't replicate the finished model because, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about nature-based learning right now and we're suddenly it's like, you know, okay, let's do nature-based learning. But the Finns and the Danes had, you know, forest schools since the, I think the 60s even, yeah. 50s or 60s. So that's, something you can't just kind of drop in and of course the danger is if you drop an initiative down and it's not properly supported and it's not phased in it and it doesn't work then people think the, there's something wrong with the initiative rather than the strategy exactly and that that takes away the momentum for for change so so where you're working is trying to to sort of show that it doesn't have to be that way and you're finding that you're making you're able to make an impact with just targeted initiatives Yes, absolutely. I mean, the if I look at what we have achieved with, you know, Little Inventors, where I was for four years, so that's the thing I can talk the most about right now. Um, but, you know, we, we did um, an amazing challenge with the Canadian Space Agency in Canada and the Canadian government. And um, so what I what my role in it was to create resources. So I created uh, these resources, which were for teachers, but children facing. So there has a lot of nice illustration. It was all about the tone that sort of worked with children, but with proper learning in it. Because it's possible, like the two don't have to be antithesis. You can have fun and learn, absolutely part of it. Um, and this, um, these resources were downloaded over 3,000 times by teachers in Canada. All of that without just through word of mouth and social media. There was no big campaigns. And we had, again, thousands of entries to it. And amazing ideas, really fun things. Um, 30 objects were made. And then we have two that actually went to the International Space Station that was shown as the first first art exhibition in the International Space Station. So, you know, this was just based on like an online platform, some resources delivered by teachers in their home country, and then the whole process went from there. You know, this is not something which takes, it's not a, it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. <laughs> it is a little bit, but not that much. <laughs> Keep on doing it. 
it's not brain surgery yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so um so that was a really good example of you know how you can do simple things if you understand the, the for me it's all about understanding the audience mm -hmm. if you understand who you're talking to if you understand that you're talking to the children but really you're also talking to the teachers and how you can help both getting into it then yeah. you have something that is usable that is properly useful and that can take you places yeah Space. yeah <laughs> and of course the the hope i guess is that um i mean if you think about these the impact these things have and of course you've got the children going home and talking excitedly to their parents um and you see parents like the feedback you had with the girl with the um the the, the fake ears which i i saw them and it just stood out straight away it's just such a great thing um then the hope of course is that that people will see hey there's there's something in this what what concerns me is that um whether people whether the people who are administrating the system or perpetuating the structures of the system are able to see that this isn't an episodic thing this mm -hmm. can be the thing yeah that we do um any insights on how we get from there to there you know, what's what's in the middle because i don't fully know uh, i don't really um, i've not been able to think about solving we were talking before this about the tribe you know that's like there's um there's a whole bunch of us basically who are working in this field and i think there's definitely a movement yeah. coming through with that and the best and you can see it also coming from things like universities so in the uk you have a number of um universities that are really looking at how you learn so the school of education in sussex and things like that and they they the, the language that comes out of it is that there's no such thing as lost learning we have to stop talking about the lost learning during the pandemic because children learn in different ways and anyway what you learn at school is not what you're going to do in life and science changes by the moment you're at school and when you're grown up like the, some so many dinosaurs didn't exist when i was a kid <laughs> do you know what i mean so um, we've got to We've got to equip children and how do we get the, the junction to that is the big question, obviously, but we have to sort of get much more. Um, we've got to get these sort of initiatives going that um, can then be evidence based by working with people who are you know, in research, for example, universities are a really good place to do that as well. So really sort of um, showing the, the value of things. Um, what I find really interesting on a very simple level is, for example, China which is always held as one of the nations that you know has got all its math and science so well that we all feel like we've got to sort of catch up with them. Well, what are they doing at the moment? They're employing people from the Institute of Education to go over in England, they're sort of shipping them over to China because they want to teach creative thinking. Because what they know is that they're very good at production, but they're not very good at coming up with ideas, which is why they keep on copying stuff. So, <laughs> so but if China, the nation of this sort of like rot learning is now thinking about creative learning and creative thinking. Mm -hmm. Surely, surely that's a really good indication of what, how the wind is blowing. Yeah, you would hope so. I mean, it's amazing the weight of evidence that's required before a change. I mean, I was reading that before they decided to take the lead out of petrol, there was something like 670 um, gold standard studies that demonstrated the the adverse effects on health and it took and you think surely after a hundred there would be an idea no. to make a change but so I get I guess patience is a thing so maybe the, these initiatives are sort of chipping away at the structure um, yes I mean it's um, I, I wish things could happen faster and I wish we could get to to this level and you know there's a level of 
uh, experts not being heard. Is that familiar in any sort of ways? Um, you know, there, there's a great, for me, there's certainly a frustration because I've been working in education for as long as I have now. I could see there was, a, for example, in, in the UK, there was the Rose Primary Review that happened in 1910, uh, sorry, 1910, 2010. And it was all about how we we're going to transform primary education to something that was much more holistic, cross-curricular, and the sort of model that we know is the model that works, and it was evidenced. And the first thing that happens is that we have a new government that comes in and the first thing they do is send a Bible to every school. And, um, and all of this sort of evidence work that had been done, built over years, was just shelved. Yeah. And that's something, there's something quite criminal about that, frankly, um, to mm, me. Yes. And it's interesting what, what, for example, Scotland have done, that they're moving to enshrine the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child mm -hmm. into law. And I wonder if that's a, an approach because something has to be almost above politics um, to make sure that initiatives have um, are allowed to gather momentum. Because it's like you say, they're not. This is not going to happen in a four-year political term. No. Um, or a ten-one. Or a ten-one. So maybe that's part of it. I mean, if if you were to be, I mean, there are schools springing up that are sort of outside the system now. You know, we're both connected enough. to Learn Life in Barcelona and the Green School in Bali and Real School in Budapest and all these places. Um, if you were to be handed a school, there you go. Um, I mean, how what would be the principles around which you would structure it? Um, first of all, I would panic massively. Oh my God, responsibility yeah. again. Um, <laughs> Behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, there's like, there's a, 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 again, that sort of element of child agency, democracy. So we want children to have, you know, we have so many things that these children are confronted with. So we've got the uncertainty about the future. We've got the sort of the real threat that uh, misinformation and fake news and all this stuff is also in you know, it. How do you sort of make the part of that? And there's also the mental health crisis, which is absolutely upon us. And so what we need to do is really sort of how we address these things. And the only way we can do that is really by putting the children at the heart of the agenda and the teachers and the people that are working with them to understand what their needs are. So, you know, the agency aspect, which I keep on talking about, the second you start talking to children about, you know, there's this idea that they're very cute and, you know, they're not really to be trusted. You can't really trust children because they're a bit unpredictable. Um, give children a sense of responsibility about something and see them fly with it. Yeah. So organizing schools in a way that offers a democratic, democratic element that allows them to um, discuss things that they care about, things that they will actually want to learn about, bring that in, sort of, um, it, the themes are always going to be quite common and all these themes are also going to absolutely come back with some of the things that traditional education wants to see because you can bring science when you talk about the environment. You can bring maths if you talk about how things are built. You know, there's a lot of ways of doing this thing, but we've just got to flip how we approach things. So for my approach would be really a self-centered, like a, a child-centered, play-based, and equally democratic approach that would be looking at skills first and using the subjects as inspiration. That's, that's what would find my belly. When you say subjects, would you would you work transversally or would you keep the subjects as they are? You know what? I wouldn't even that for me the, the the less barrier the better, and I'm probably going to sound like a lunatic, but um, we know like we talk about STEAM or STEM a lot. We know that there's 
you can't really talk about science without maths, without engineering, without all of this stuff. And STEM has gathered so much momentum in the last few years. Like everyone talks about STEM, 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 or STEAM, if we're lucky to include the arts, which is still a tiny A in the STEM generally. Um, but this is not the only, you know, we, we have the humanities. How do we work with that? There's um, the link between music and maths, for example, is so strong. Why are we not, you know, you could teach so much through music. I mean, the example is as a, as a French person, I, I, studied, I studied English when I was 11 at school and I, I, it, it went in like butter. And the reason why that happened is because I was a massive fan of music and I knew everything by the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel by heart before I started school. I didn't know what the words were, but it was all in my ears. Yeah. So um, there are so many opportunities, exciting opportunities that are cross-curricular that can come from different areas. And, um, and, it, and I get it, it's overwhelming to think, but there's so much, you know, and we have to reinvent everything. But there's a lot of people out there that can do this and, and that do it, actually. There are a lot of brilliant initiatives across the world. And we are now in a world that is so connected that there's no reason why that can't be made more accessible. So I'm not advocating a, a worldwide curriculum because, you know, but actually um, a level of making the most of resources that are there and involving the people who can actually bring these things to life. We have a lot of companies around the world that have real skills that they can showcase. Bringing that in as well, creating these resources, I think that's something that um, has the potential of really changing things. Um, so yes, I, I probably wouldn't silo subjects entirely, no. Yeah, I've, I've certainly been of the mind for quite a while that subjects are quite an artificial concept anyway and um it's like you say they, they they always touch upon such other things and the reason why we might not you know maths for example is so many people that, that think they don't enjoy maths because they experience it in this bubble uh unconnected to the real world and it's actually i mean and i'm one of those those people mm -hmm. who later in life saw the beauty in it and saw how it was connected to explaining so much in the world and wish that it had been presented like that when I was a child, because things might have been different, you know. Um, exactly. So one way of looking at it is it, it's a it's a threatening experience, like like any change, you know, that, oh, we've got to reinvent this. And how do we understand things if there's no barriers and no boxes? But it's also tremendously empowering, mm -hmm. um, especially when we, as you say, accept that we don't have to have all the answers and there are lots of people around us. And when you ask companies and you ask experts, and you ask parents and you ask communities, there's something we can all agree on, and that is that we want to do the right thing by the next generation. You know, the, 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 there's so little resistance to that. And yes. my only worry, and I wonder if you share it, is that we don't have the luxury of all the time because the world is, is changing. We talk about the VUCA world and all of this. Yes. And, you know, last year has taught us very clearly, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity are hallmarks of the future. Yes. It's only going to be more so. And I I wonder, do you share this sort of feeling that, hey, we don't really have all the time in the world to make this change? Yes, absolutely. I feel a lot of pressure from that. Having, you know, I have a, a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old at home. I see, you know, I, I asked myself, I think this last year has been a huge year for assessment for self-assessment for everyone we've all like you know through so many different circumstances some of us have been fairly lucky through it some of them have not been but like this sort of 
we've had an opportunity to just look at our lives and just go, what's going on? And I think a lot of parents are thinking that too and looking at how their children are. They've had also a prime insight into how their children are taught. And what I hear from a lot of parents is to go, what is going on? Because that's not helpful. You know, that's, uh, again, within the realm of, yes, it's amazing that a lot of it has happened. But, you know, there was like a massive difference between that first lockdown where the, the, the emphasis was so much on mental health and well-being so that the, the kids that were still at school were playing and the kids at home were giving like quite a minimal amount of things so that they could just get on with things. And obviously that poses some challenges because how do you occupy the kids, etc. But the second lockdown was the opposite. The second lockdown has been, uh, we must catch up, we must catch up, we must catch up. And everyone felt it, the kids, the teachers and the parents. And was that a better learning experience? It really wasn't. Actually, there's a lot of children now who are really suffering from uh, anxiety and such. Um, and I think that's, that's the worry, is that we have a, a whole generation, you know, it's not about the lost learning, it's about the mental health. I think the biggest conversation that we've got to tackle now is mental health and how we're going to support them to that future, which is so full of uncertainties and God knows what else we're going to get coming our way. So yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's not something that we can afford to wait to do. Um, and that's certainly something that I'm working towards as well. And I mean, I'm hoping to be everything that I'm talking about. I'm basically trying to put my my actions where my words are and 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 work on that as well. Um, and I think the only way that we're going to do that is by by keep on connecting with the same sort of community of people and sort of pushing these initiatives and showing the value of them, because that's uh, and trying to make them as accessible as we can. The, one of the issues is that you talk about these brilliant schools that are popping up around, around the world, but they're just still the exception yeah and we need we are now in a world that is so connected that there is an opportunity to reach there to sort of go how do we use these amazing technology that we do have to make things accessible not just to the few but to everybody else as well and and we've got to start changing minds and perspective from this sort of negative view of how we can't do things to the one where actually, yes, we can, we can change how we do things because we know that it can happen. We see it, we can see how fast the world has changed with the pandemic to adapt. That's one of the big lessons of it. Yeah. So that lesson we need to bring into, we need to teach ourselves that lesson and, and go with it and run with it as much as we can. Well, let's hope we can do that. And it's like you say, you know, there has been a realization and it was almost like in the first lockdown that it was a moment where we could have built upon that, but then almost the, the old pattern of behavior comes in. Mm. And this is what happens when you measure the success of a nation by GDP per capita is the fear of the, the, the econ economic stagnation and, and the wheel, the cogs stopping turning. And, uh, you know, and that's what seems to have happened in the second lockdown, wasn't it? We need to keep moving. We need to keep the system yeah. turning over. Um, but somewhere in the middle, there will be people who have come to that realization that this is not, it's not healthy. I think yeah. so. So, so in, on that note, and just to end on something positive, I'm very glad and enthused and encouraged that there are people like you out there doing this and not just talking about it, um, but actually, you know, putting into action. Um, and I'm glad that there's people out there, you know, that we have this sense of community that we can connect share the ideas exactly. go back out and and keep fighting that good fight so thank exactly. you for everything you've shared well thank you so much i mean it was 
brilliant conversation to have and it's um because it's uh, it's always good to know that we are you know there's yes there's more of us and we can make it happen we can do that we can just maybe not maybe not by next week but we can do it right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's enjoy the kids let's have a bit of a break <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well, thank you so much Catherine for sharing that um it's been a pleasure and love to have you back again for a chat absolutely brilliant Thank you.